0: Thank you. Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. In this episode of Conversations from Here, I am honored and privileged to speak with John L. Tarpley, M.D. He is Professor of Surgery Emeritus at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and is the former Program Director for General Surgery Residence there. He has also been the Associate Chief of General Surgery at the VA Hospital in Nashville and is currently the Academic Dean of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. He is a passionate advocate for patients and doctors alike. He has spent a huge portion of his professional life in Africa, specifically Nigeria, Kenya, Rwanda, and Botswana, training young surgeons and ministering to those most in need tarp as we call him as anyone in the hallowed halls of vanderbilt will attest is a legendary character who is as humble as he is funny and as knowledgeable as he is wise we talk about his life and work discuss some of the challenges with getting medical care in places far from urban centers we talk about his personal love story and his early obsession with college sports it's a fascinating talk I think you'll really enjoy it. Here's me and Dr. Tarpley. You are, um, you are a very large part of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And uh, full disclosure, I, I work there, which is how we are acquainted. And I wanted to, um, you know, when one reads your bio, um, it, one of the first things is professor of surgery and anesthesiology emeritus in the Department of Surgery. In the section of surgical sciences, um, so tell me, uh, you're an emeritus. So how um, how long how long has it been since you were a regular?
1: Well, first off, uh, when I was active faculty through uh, June uh, 30th of 2016, I had a secondary appointment as professor of anesthesiology uh, once. Uh, I went emeritus, which was, uh, I think, the 1st of July of 2016. Uh, Anesthesia doesn't have emeritus. And so basically, I'm emeritus, a professor of surgery right now, but I'm no longer uh, a professor of anesthesiology. But I was, that was a secondary appointment for me for several years before my retirement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And even,
0: and and as you were fond of saying, even though you're retired, you just work 40 hours a week instead of 80 hours a week. (laughs)
1: Well I'm supposed to be at a half-time job right now so I would say that that's the half time is half of 80 is 40 so yeah um, and I probably exceed that but that's just because I enjoy it and I like what I do
0: Yeah and um so I I did want to cast us back um not maybe not to the very beginning but certainly when did you as a young person become interested in medicine
1: Uh when I went to Vanderbilt for my undergraduate in 1962, my two kind of career treks were to either be a high school chemistry teacher and a high school basketball coach, or maybe go to medical school. Uh, one of the highlights of my life is that I was manager and trainer of the Vanderbilt basketball team, uh, and actually helped with the football team as well, and even the baseball team as a trainer, student trainer, student manager. Uh, and so I worked very closely with uh, the athletic department with sports injuries with the trainer. And we had an orthopedic surgeon who was our team physician who I got to know. And so uh, I think probably uh, through uh, sports and seeing that uh, the the, uh, physician side, the sports medicine side and different things like that, I think that uh, that tipped me uh, toward uh, going to medicine instead of to being a high school chemistry teacher and a high school basketball coach. Mm-hmm. I am a, I'm a kind of a basketball-aholic. I don't do NBA and I mostly do college now and an SEC, but uh, uh, basically through that relationship, which lasted actually more than four years, it actually lasted into parts of medical school as well, that I would be kind of an acting student uh, trainer from time to time. Uh, but anyway, that was important to me potentially kind of moving over to the Pre-med side instead of through the uh, education uh, chemistry side,
0: and and you're you grew up in the Nashville area, is that right? That's why your connection. I was, no, I Mandy? was born
1: here. I was born here, uh, but uh, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. So third grade to twelfth grade, I was in Jackson, Mississippi.
0: Interesting. And were That's you in?
1: I, so what I like to say is that I went to North to college.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, and so you went to uh, you got your you got your undergrad at Vanderbilt, and then you went on to get your uh, your medical your medical degree at Vanderbilt, and then you you went on to Johns Hopkins after that.
1: Right. So you go during your senior medical school, you enter the match, uh, which is a process to try to find a graduate medical education residency positions. Uh, right out of medical school that we find out usually in March of your senior year of medical school. So I interviewed at about eight places and uh, uh, Vanderbilt was high on my list. There were several other places, but I ended up matching at uh, Hopkins in Baltimore. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And then, uh, then you came back, uh, the siren call of Vanderbilt <laughs> tempted you back. Um, and then when did you start, um, because because you became faculty at Vanderbilt when did when did that happen
1: 23 years after uh, I graduated so I left Nashville for 23 years uh and uh so we went to Baltimore and Bethesda and uh France and the West of England so I did my residency training my research my military equivalent obligation mm-hmm. uh some of my thoracic surgery training so basically we went to Baltimore had a had a one child when we went who was about three months old uh, and moved to uh, Baltimore. And then we had another child there. So I was in Baltimore basically for seven years, Baltimore and Bethesda for seven years, except for six months of thoracic surgery training in the UK. Mm -hmm. And then when we finished in uh, uh, the residency program at Hopkins, I was supposed to stay on faculty at Hopkins. uh, But we, uh, my wife and I, Uh, probably me pushing more than her, Uh, my wife and I elected instead of staying in Baltimore that we would go to an underserved area uh, and do surgical education there as opposed to do surgical education in Baltimore. When I look around Baltimore, they had so many surgeons. They were outstanding. They were standing in line to uh, see patients and do cases and to be involved with the residents and stuff. Such is not the case in like sub-Saharan Africa and many other parts of the world, and uh, so we uh, kind of looked into the options of uh, doing kind of full-time missionary service, uh, and uh, ended up electing to go to Nigeria instead of staying at Baltimore.
0: Mm-hmm. And and speaking of Maggie, your wonderful wife and partner in all things, where did you where did you meet? Was that here or was that in Baltimore?
1: No, we met in the line at Rand Hall, which is the cafeteria at Vanderbilt. Uh, she knew a lot of people that I knew. I knew a lot of people that she knew. She took a lot of geology courses. A lot of the basketball placers uh, took geology courses because uh, it was easier to get a C or a pass there. It really wasn't rocks for jocks, but it was a lot easier than a lot of them were in engineering school and uh, doing computer science and things like that. So uh, she got to know some of my close friends. Uh I, I was in a biology class with one of her close friends and another. So between us, we had some mutual friends. And so that's how we met, really.
0: This is a story of love and basketball.
1: <laughs> it was actually. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then and then. So tell me about uh, your time in the UK, uh, where you were and, uh, and and what you were doing. Um, and You mentioned thoracic thoracic surgery.
1: Right. So the way the residency program worked in Baltimore, I did two clinical years. We, called that. we used to call it intern and junior assistant resident. Now we call it postgraduate year one, postgraduate year two. Mm-hmm. And many of our people, because we were kind of on an academic pack, track in the sense that we were gonna be doing teaching and research in addition to clinical care, uh, most everybody would do two years of research, or maybe three. Uh, if this was the time of the Vietnam War, so there was also the Berry Plan, our, Uh, going straight into the military or different things like that. Mm -hmm. So my final year of medical school, one of my colleagues mentioned that they were applying to the U.S. Public Health Service, which Uh involved basically the Indian Health Service and then basically the NIH uh, in Bethesda. And I said, "Hmm, I never even thought about that. So at the 11th hour, I applied uh, to the National Institutes of Health in the Cancer Institute, the National, National Cancer Institute surgery branch uh, because I had matched in surgery and I was interested in surgery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and lo and behold, I was interviewed, I was selected. And so uh, I went from after my two years of first year, uh, my first two years of surgery training, I went to Bethesda and we were in Bethesda for two years. Then I came back and did rotations uh, in Nashville, excuse me, in Baltimore for uh, half a year and then in uh, January, end of, of, end of December of 2074, uh, my wife and now two children, uh, we went to Frenchay Hospital, which is in the west of England. It's uh, mm-hmm. basically Bristol. So we, oh, were yes, a, yes. we were in a suburb of Bristol and I was at the Frenchay Hospital and also worked at uh, St. Michael's Hill, which was a pediatric hospital for Bristol and for the western region. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was there for six months. I was with two uh, consultant surgeons. Uh, Mr. Belsi was the main one and then Mr. Mill. So I did six months of uh, kind of apprenticeship, if you will, one on one with Mr. Belsi, who was one of the premier thoracic surgeons in the world, in my opinion. Uh, non-cardiac thoracic surgeons with a big interest in uh, cancer, but also esophageal reflux and diseases of the esophagus.
0: Mm hmm. And so that became a specialization for you um, through the years, right? Esophageal cancer?
1: Well, I'm, I'm certainly interested in that. And that's something that I knew something about and had done some work with. Uh, as it turned out, uh, when I came back to Baltimore and finished out the last two and a half uh, years or so there, uh, and we went to Nigeria, uh We really, as my partner Don Meyer, now deceased, said, we confined our practice to the skin and its contents. So basically, Mm -hmm. uh, we did general, general, I said I was a general, general surgeon, Uh uh, but I did have an interest in oncology. I had an interest in proctology, anal rectal diseases. uh, Mm -hmm. But basically, we we basically did uh, craniotomies. We did head trauma. We had a lot of trauma at our hospital, so we had Mm -hmm. a lot of road traffic crashes. And so we had burn patients. We had head trauma patients. I didn't have very much thoracic surgery there. I, we did a few thoracic cases, but there was very little smoking. There was very little lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I saw a few patients with uh, esophageal cancer. There's a lot of esophageal cancer in the east, especially in Kenya and along the uh, Indian Ocean going basically from Ethiopia down to northern uh, part of the Republic of South Africa. So that, that's a hot spot for esophageal cancer. But I rarely saw esophageal cancer, less than five patients that I know of in my years in uh, Nigeria. Uh, But I did did see some. I wrote one paper with some of my colleagues at the University Teaching Hospital, which was two hours away. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's that it was a little bit of everything.
0: So why? why esophageal cancer? What do you know in terms of, or does anybody know why the large numbers of cases?
1: Well, the number, large number of cases are confined to about four hot spots in the world. One of them is in China. Mm-hmm. One of them is in our eastern part of, uh, of Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some more. There's one in South. There's a place in South America or so, but uh, it's really confined to places and there's a lot of active research that's going on. My classmate, who was the president of our class, David Fleischer, has worked with a whole host of folks in the in China and in Africa and other places. And part of it may be related to smoke, cooking smoke. In right. China, a lot of the people do their cooking with the uh, fire on the inside and all the windows closed because it's coal. And so they're getting all the products of combustion from their cooking. Uh, that pertains to some extent in can- in. in in Southwest Kenya as well, and in other parts, but it's still, there's some uh, toxins that can get into the mucosa. In uh, Southwest Kenya, the Maasai people who are the cattle herders of that area, uh, they overheat their tea uh, compared to anybody in England or the U.S. such that it's about 20 degrees hotter than we drink it here, so they would basically scald their mucosa Ah, of their esophagus, and then they would... uh, Uh, maybe take some other substances that have some uh, uh, agents in it that were injurious or the smoke would be injurious but they would basically in in cancer what happens is you have normal mucosa which is the lining of the GI tract gastrointestinal tract or the, the, the the cervix or the tracheobronchial tree so you have normal healthy mucosa but if it gets damaged repetitively 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 it goes from from you which means uh, normal or healthy mm-hmm. to have some irritation and to have inflammatory changes and so it, it can go from from you, a plasia, normal growth to uh, uh, some dis- it, it, some um, metaplasia which is uh, basically inflammation induced uh, some changes in the mucosa to dysplasia which means it's really abnormal mucosa to mm-hmm. neoplasia, so that's a progression that we see in CA of the cervix related to papilloma virus. Mm-hmm. We see it in the tracheobronchial tree re- related to cigarette smoking, and we see it in uh, the esophageal mucosa uh, from a variety of toxins and tobacco and alcohol. In the states, are highly uh, related to esophageal cancer, mm-hmm. uh, as it is to, uh, tobacco smoke is to uh, tracheobronchial to lung cancer.
0: Mm -hmm. And then the combination thereof of alcohol and and
1: cigarettes it it can be injurious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And um, so uh, speaking of Africa, this is a place that you go back to again and again, Um, various, I I know that um, more recently you were in, well, the most recently you were in Togo, but before that you were in Kenya. Um, What, what, How did you begin? Well, you just explained that about how you began your association with Africa. Um, And you are involved with surgical education there as well. Yes.
1: Yes. All along. That's the reason I went. I did not go to perform operations. I went to uh, hopefully help uh, equip and motivate and stimulate and catalyze African surgeons uh, to be interested in the surgical discipline. Mm-hmm. and to improve their skills. So basically, like I was thinking about going to coaching, I see myself as a coach, as a teacher, as an encourager. Uh, so that, you know, within academic surgery, uh, there are people who do clinical care, there are people who do research, there are people who do education, and increasingly there are people who do administration. Mm-hmm. But I was heavily involved in clinical care, a little bit of research, a lot of education, and some uh, administration. Uh, mm-hmm. But to, go, to take you back, uh, in, instead of staying in Baltimore on faculty there, uh, we, went to, we went through our church. So this was a faith-based endeavor. Uh, so we w- were appointed by the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, and uh, that was in, uh, in August of 1977, after I had finished residency training and, and being on faculty at Hopkins for, uh, for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we went for orientation. We went to seminary for six months in Louisville, Kentucky. Then we went for orientation in Georgia for three months. So in April of 1978, my wife and two kids, first and second graders, we went to Shaw, Nigeria, which had uh, four trainees. I'll call them trainees. They had four trainees that were there, not necessarily in surgery, but uh, uh, in maybe general medical practice. Uh, and so we worked there. And my my chairman in Baltimore... Uh, when I elected to go to Nigeria instead of going to Baltimore, he made a most unusual offer, which we accepted. But he basically said that uh, if, uh, if it doesn't work out, if somebody gets sick, if there's a coup or this or that or the other, that I would always have a job as long as he was chairman. And then he said, uh, and when it's time for you to have a stateside assignment, I will have a position for you. So let me know a year before you come back. And so what we settled on was to work really intensively there for three years and then come back and be on faculty at Hopkins and work at the Baltimore VA for the fourth year. So we did kind of like a three, one, three, one, three, one, three, one, uh, kind of a gig over the 15 years that we were there. That way uh, we could make a little money. I could do deputation work for my church. The kids could see their grandparents and their cousins and these sorts of things. And so uh, and I, it kept me up to date. Uh, as far as kind of refueling myself, going to conferences, the residents would teach me. I would teach the residents. So I was doing an academic education job mm-hmm. while I was back uh, in Baltimore. Those uh, those years that I was back at Hopkins.
0: And what an amazing upbringing for the kids to be going back and forth between the uh, the states and the continent of Africa, because you were in different different countries there um, during this time. Is that right? Or were you, or we were, were you specifically-
1: We were always in Nigeria for the- Oh, ones. you were, okay. 8 to 93.
0: So okay. 78
1: to 93, we had actually intended to make that a 30 year commitment, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we were ended up after 15 years for a variety of reasons, uh, elected to go back. There were several factors involved there. One was that we had trained up people who were ready to take over leadership at the hospital. But in our area, the the language in our area was uh, Yoruba. But in the Yoruba tradition, they would say, why do we need a new chief if the old chief is here? So it's while I'm there, I'm blocking their ascent to taking on administrative positions. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the mantras that uh, we were instructed with as we were appointed was that your goal is to work yourself out of a job and replace yourself with a national. Yeah, so we had several uh, we had several very, very capable people. As long as I was uh, the head of surgery, as long as I, they, they wanted me to be a medical superintendent of the hospital, I refused that, but they did make me the, the assistant, but I got rid of that as soon as I could to a, to a Nigerian. Uh, but uh, I was the primary, one of the primary surgeons there along with a chap named Don Meyer. Uh, we were the two Western trained, U.S. trained uh, academic surgeons who were at that hospital. And we trained uh, people who could do Uh, major operative procedures. But uh, what this is a a point that I would like to make is, is that I maintain, I always ask the third year medical students uh, or whomever, uh, how do you define a surgery? And most of them talk about operations and procedures and people who like to operate and use their hands. But my definition is is a surgeon is a physician who can operate when it's indicated and it's in the better interest of the patient. We're primarily physicians, and we're not just technicians. We're not like small boys for others to put in lines, go do this procedure, take out, fix that flat tire, come, you know, work my computer. Uh, we are physicians, just like the internists are, the pediatricians are, and we want to be physicians who think, uh, not just uh, technicians. And so, a favorite definition that I like is that good surgeons know when to operate great surgeons know when not to operate. Yeah. So we want to encourage our, our surgery colleagues, the people we train, that they, they can operate, but it's not all about operating. It's about choosing who needs it, has earned it, should have it, and then talking to the patient, but then the patient ultimately makes uh, the final decision. Though in Nigeria, oftentimes the eldest male in the family or the family would help make that decision They did not have the same level uh, of autonomy that patients in the States would expect and would be uh, uh, expected to have, but it's Mm -hmm. often a family decision instead of an individual person's decision.
0: Sure. And I learned a
1: lot. I learned a ton in Nigeria. I tell people most of the important stuff I know I learned in Nigeria from Nigerians.
0: That's amazing. I I was also going to ask about, um, what, what is, what are the qualities that a great surgeon has? What is, what is the right stuff? In quotes, um, obviously, someone who is technically very proficient, but there's so much more than that. And, and, and I imagine that the ability to communicate and the bill and the ability to, um, to have empathy for the patient and for the family. Um, what are what are those qualities?
1: Well, actually, you just kind of recapitulated part of the hour-long talk that I delivered today virtually uh, to the program directors and associate program directors in the College of Surgeons of East Central and Southern Africa. So uh, once a month, we have a session with our PACS trainees, and we have a session with the COSEXA trainees. Mm -hmm. And the point that we made there is that for most of the things that we do as surgeons, technically, if you can tie your shoes, you can do it. Uh, Yes, because knots
0: are important. Well,
1: but I'm just saying that the manual dexterity is not the the, the number one criteria. And My joke is that I I tell people that if you can tie your shoes, that you can do most surgical procedures. Now, there's some congenital heart and there's some microvascular and there's there's some areas of fields of of disciplines of surgery that are more technically demanding than other. But it's the cognitive piece. It's the judgment piece that I think is really, really important. And so what I say is, is that if you can tie your shoes, you can you can do the operations. And I look around and people have on thongs and sandals and crocs. Uh, So then it causes me to stop and think for a second. Uh, But the bottom line is the technical piece is very important, uh, especially certain disciplines within surgery and also true in in internal medicine and endoscopy and interventional radiology. It's not just uh, for surgeons but that's not the primary event. The primary event is the thought process, the gathering the data, taking a careful history, doing a good physical examination. We call it SOAP. The subjective is what the patient tells us. Mm -hmm. And Mm Oser said the patient will tell you the diagnosis if you will allow them. The objective piece is what we get from our physical exam, which needs to be thorough, but also from our laboratory investigations and from our imaging studies. And Mm -hmm. one of the things Mm -hmm. that's changed greatly since 1970 when I graduated is we had no CTs or MRIs or PET scans in 1970. Right. I saw my very first uh, c- CT when I was in Bristol, England uh, in French A Hospital in 1975, and it was only a head CT at that time. Later, it became a body CT, and the names have all changed from uh, a CAT scan. It was an Emmy scan first, then it was a CAT scan, a CT scan, because it's not only axial, but it can be sagittal it can be uh different uh different cuts if you will from the uh, mm-hmm. scanner
0: mm-hmm.
1: so anyway it's been exciting and that's the other thing that i tell the people who might be interested in surgery and tell our surgeons is that this is a very just all of medicine it's very dynamic it's not static and we don't want to be practicing 1970 or 1976 medicine and surgery in 2023 so con- continual professional development continuing medical education these are really important things, uh, as we go forward.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what, um, what is the, Ooh, actually there's a, there's a, I'm just going to shut the window here because there's a lot of rain starting. And actually earlier you didn't see this, but there was a peacock looking in the window, <laughs> our well. neighbor's peacock. Um, what what are the are the biggest challenges now obviously um there are uh institutions for medical education there um now that are probably more numerous than they used to be um what what is the biggest challenge for the um for the medical community in say Nigeria today
1: Well let me just Let me speak about sub-Saharan Africa, if I can, more broadly than Nigeria, because Nigeria has got more human resources than probably anybody in sub-Saharan Africa, have Mm -hmm. incredible potential. They've got lots of medical schools, but they still have many areas that are uh, underserved. So Mm -hmm. thinking about the Cosexa region, which is like uh, 12 or 13 countries over on the east, central and southern side of things, uh, normally we would like to have uh, 20 care providers for 100,000 people. By Mm -hmm. that, I mean surgeons, obstetricians, and anesthesiologists. Uh, In in the Cosexa region, we have one for Mm 200,000. So there's a huge discrepancy in care providers, but even more important than that, the infrastructure and COVID revealed how weak our infrastructure was. We have very few anesthetists. We have very few ICUs. We have very few ventilators. We didn't have protective uh, uh, a PPE equipment to protect our nurses, our physicians, our care providers. And so I think that uh, it's multifactorial. It's not a factor, it's multiple factors, transportation costs, affordability. So the Lancet Commission in 2015 wanted to have quality, safe, accessible, affordable care. And we have essentially none of that unless Mm. you uh, are a privileged individual and have health insurance through your profession or through your job. So there's a huge discrepancy between the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this, we're actually, I could argue with you that we're uh, maybe falling behind instead of catching up. And the reason I say that is, is that if you look at the, the projections for the world population, Going to 2050 and beyond, uh, Nigeria is projected to be the third largest country in the world by, by 2050. So when I went to Nigeria in 78, we had 68 to 70 million people. In 2021, there were 211 million people. They think there are probably 220 million people now, and they're projecting moving up toward 500 million by 2050. So the population is outgrowing the production uh, of care providers. And when I say care providers, I'm talking about nurses, physiotherapists, biomedical engineers, pharmacists, uh, not just surgeons. This is not just about surgeons. What we miss the most, in my opinion, would be anesthesiologists or nurse anesthetists, uh, because we in surgery can't do anything without safe airway management and anesthesia. Uh, but we also don't have specialists. Uh, One of our former graduates was here this week and gave a series of lectures. She's uh, training pediatric surgeons in Kajabi, Kenya. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Kajabi, Kenya has 40 million people. Tennessee has 6 million people. Tennessee has something like 100 more uh, pediatric surgeons than than the country of Kenya does. Uh, I mean, the discrepancies, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the, the discrepancies are just huge. And there's mm-hmm. some countries that don't have a single pediatric surgeon. Well, mm-hmm. a general general surgeon can take care of a five or six-year-old, but a neonate, which is up to 28 days, and an infant that's up to a year, uh, you need a team. You need a pediatric anesthesiologist. You need a pediatric intensivist. You need hyperalimentation uh, mm-hmm. for nutritional support. And you need pediatric surgeon. And we just don't have them. So the, the, there's a, I, there are like five major areas that I think are huge challenges for the broad tent of surgery and anesthesia, including that tent because we're joined at the hip. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, there are more people that die of trauma than from TB, malaria, and HIV combined. Yeah, And yet there's almost no research funding for trauma. And there are billions of dollars that are there for HIV and tubercul- and uh, malaria and tuberculosis. Right. So it's really not being addressed uh, so that's a huge thing It's vehicular trauma, but it's also uh, trauma related to falls and industrial and agricultural mm-hmm. injuries and different things like that. Uh, women's health issues are a huge problem. The C-section rates are high. The C-section mortality is high. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a risk to have a child in many areas of sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world. I just haven't been to those parts of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. So pediatric is another one. The non-communicable diseases are markedly increasing and that's oncology so mm-hmm. the other thing that we don't have is that we don't have the medications that we need whether it's uh, oncologic medications for like women with breast cancer uh or other cancers like uh treatable cancers like uh white cell cancers like mm-hmm. leukemias and lymphomas uh, but uh really we don't have medicines that are for analgesia for relief of pain so right. pain okay. medications that's the sixth uh it's in the surgical tent, but it's number six in the surgical tent, but we don't have the medications we need, especially medications to relieve pain. Mm-hmm.
0: What, is, what is the solution for that? Who, who is the, uh, is there a governing body? Is there a, a, a non-GMOs or who, where, where what, is the, what is the place to start with that for analgesics and all the other stuff?
1: a lot of this stuff, you know, the the, the WHO is an advocacy group. It's a bully pulpit. They don't really have money. They're just our advocacy. So Mm -hmm. in 2015, which was a major year for global surgery and global health, there were three or four major things that happened. Uh, Disease control priorities for the first time included surgery. Before that, it was felt to be too expensive, uh, too high tech, and basically surgery was identified uh, by Paul Farmer and, and Chang from the World Bank as being the stepchild of public health it wasn't included as part of the public health package. Uh, but with 2015, uh, we had the uh, we had a major uh, initiative between the disease control priorities, uh, between the launching of the Lancet Commission in 2015, and then the World Health Assembly, which meets every year, actually passed the resolution unanimously that everybody signed that said that surgery and anesthesia should be part of public health. Mm -hmm. And we've been advocating for that since 2015, 2016. And a lot of people approve it and say that's great, but there's no funding. There's not a single country in Sub-Saharan Africa, even those who have approved uh, the World Health Organization, everybody approved it in principle. Uh, Some countries have have, actually have uh, plans, their national surgical uh, OB plans but none of them are funded. So Mm -hmm. it's a, you know, you have to deal with not just the Ministry of Health, but the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Finance. Where are you gonna prioritize this along with military, governmental, educational, other expenditures. And so really, uh, I would say that the WHO is an obvious place to be, but actually each country within their country, country by country is gonna have to be able to convince their leadership that it's an equity investment. What the Lancet Commission showed was that having healthy workers increased your productivity and increased the income to your country. So you you turn what is a loss leader, a population you have to take care of, and two or three other people who are taking care of them as well, perhaps. And so if you can have those people all in the workforce, potentially, theoretically, you can improve the economics of your country Uh, and it can be a a win-win situation for your population as well as for the economy of your country. So really, the WHO is kind of the place that people go, but again, you have to recognize that they're a bully pulpit. They don't do funding. They try to encourage people, and that's what we do. I'm part Mm -hmm. of a Southern uh, Africa development community, and we meet, and we meet, and we meet, but at the last meeting, which we have monthly, I said that uh, how many of our countries within our region have this insult plan funded? And the answer is zero.
0: Mm. And then, with regard to the vehicular trauma and fatalities, and uh, occupational trauma <laughs> and such, um, what about addressing those things? what What is the what is the reason for the is it is it lack of safety standards with regard to transportation?
1: Well, again, I'm a VA surgeon. I put 28 years between time in Baltimore and Nashville and not not taking my sick leave. So I had 28 years with uh, the VA and two years with the uh, public health service. So I got Mm -hmm. like a nice plaque on the wall thanking me for my 30 years of government service. But if you've seen one VA, you've seen one VA in many ways. And if you've seen one country, you've seen one country. So in some countries... uh, majority of the transportation in the cities is by motorcycle taxis. Or it mm-hmm. can be by tutus where you have 15 or 20 people in the back of a pickup truck. With yeah. two of those hit, you can have 30 casualties from one road traffic crash. But mm-hmm. the leading cause of, de- of death and injury and not being able to return to work, spinal cord injuries, head injuries, is often related to motorcycle taxis yes. and to bad roads, to poor maintenance. The indication for getting a new tire is not that it's getting bald or the tread's gone. It's when you have a blowout uh, right. because tires are expensive. Uh, but uh, maintenance is a huge issue. Uh, vehicles, um, these sorts of things. But again, uh, if you if you contrast this, the each the cities are very, very different. If you're in Lagos, there are thousands and millions of taxis and laws are passed to have helmet laws, but then people oppose those. And sure. for a variety of religion, reasons, those are not... In place. If you're in Kenya, we have my tutus and we have uh motorcycle taxis and both of them contribute greatly to the trauma load. If you go to to Rwanda, where the the president has a more authoritarian posture, he basically decreed that every motorcycle driver and their passengers will have a helmet. So they have helmet laws in Rwanda. Well, they don't have them in Nigeria, they don't have them in Kenya. Uh, and so, and in Botswana, uh, which is a middle-income country, it's not mm-hmm. a low-income country. Uh, they have cars instead of motorcycles. Right. So that there are motorcycles there, but it's not to the same volume and percentage as it is in uh, Kenya and in other areas.
0: So really, vehicular trauma is is correlated directly with poverty.
1: It's uh, you know, Clinton <laughs> said the the 500 800 pound grill in the room is 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 poverty it's Hello. all about economics yes <laughs> and so these countries are in low-middle in, low-income countries if you look at if you go into if you google low income and low middle income countries the world bank has definitions less than 2000 a year 2000 to 4000 a year 4000 to 9000 and above 12000 kind of thing if you go and look and look at the poorest 20 countries in the world probably at least half of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. Maybe more. I
0: remember um, uh, many years ago, my father worked in India and he talked about, um, obviously, the subcontinent, very different from Africa. But at the same time, the thing that they had in common was he said the poverty there, you would not believe it. It is we have poor people in the united states but he said poor people in the united states still have stuff and he said when you when you see abject poverty where someone is laying in the middle of the street and they might have an alms bowl but that's all they have that is the thing that 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 very few people in the west can really wrap their minds around
1: so i learned a lot in botswana so we finished up so let me just say after we did uh, 12 out of 15 years in Nigeria, and I took my vacation time and would go back to Nigeria for years and go back to West Africa College of Surgeons meetings and stuff. Uh, after we retired for at Vanderbilt and the VA, my wife gave me five more years on the backside. Uh, and so we were roughly a year in Kenya, r- roughly a year in Rwanda, and then three straight years, uh, including the COVID years in mm-hmm. uh, Botswana. So Actually, uh, I returned from two meetings in the States where I was presenting uh, the first or second of March in 2020, and we did not leave the city of Haveroni until the middle of August of 2021. So basically, we were like 17 months, never left the city uh, because of travel restrictions related Mm -hmm. to COVID protocols and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I learned a ton uh, in those three years, and I met some very, very interesting people who are now like best friends. But I was introduced to a concept, and for your viewers, I would in- encourage them to look up the GINI index. Uh, GINI was a, fr- from, uh, from Italy, and in this t- 1912 or 1913, G-I-N-I, uh, mm-hmm. he created an index that kind of contrasted the haves versus the have-nots within an individual country. And so a low number, a zero number, meant everybody's got the same income. A 100% number meant that one person had all the money. So you mm-hmm. mentioned... India, for example, well, there are billionaires all over India. Yep. And there are people who don't know where their next meal is going to be, correct? Right. Yeah. Well, that's true in many of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, especially southern part of the continent. And so the Gini index in the U.S. is in the 40s, which is mediocre. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scandinavia, it's better. It's like in the 30s. Yep. Uh, A bad number is in the 50s. A terrible number is in the 60s. But like six countries in southern Africa are in the 60s, which says that the gap between the haves and the have nots is the worst in the world. So when I was in the parking lot at the Princess Marina Hospital, which was a ministry of health hospital, I saw Jaguars and Mercedes and BMWs and Audis and all these high, really wonderful vehicles. And then when I would go to Riverwalk, where we did our shopping, we would see people crawling through dumpster dumpsters looking for food to eat. Yeah. So it's not dissimilar, I think, to what goes on in India.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: didn't look in the de- degree of spread. I've never been to India. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I will tell you that there are some great discrepancies between the haves and the have nots. Uh, the homeless issue that we have in most every major city in the States, mm-hmm. that's not all financial, but a lot of it's financial. Yeah. Uh, and almost everybody is two paychecks away from being homeless, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, you can you can quibble if it's two paychecks or three paychecks. Uh, but we live on the margin.
0: Yeah. And,
1: uh, you know, when you see these corporations that lay off eight thousand workers, that that's a problem mm-hmm. and that they could be homeless as well. So uh, we some of it's related to mental health. Some of it's related to preference. Yeah. Uh, but a addiction. Lot of it, 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 uh, yeah. And uh, but a lot of it's related to uh, we had well, we had one guy we worked with the homeless uh, at our church on Friday nights. Room in the inn was started by a local priest and everything. We met a person who had a house. He was ready to retire, but he became a gambling addiction. He was in Mississippi. So he would go over to the gambling boats on the Mississippi River mm-hmm. and he basically lost his house. And now he's homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have so many things. Uh, uh, but health health is number one. Even there's terrific papers. John Scott's got papers. I can provide those if you like. But the bottom line is, is that even if you have insurance, healthcare, catastrophic health care events like road traffic crashes, major vascular disease, major cancer kind of disease, it's the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States. If you have insurance and if you don't have insurance. Yeah. Insurance helps, but it doesn't protect you from personal bankruptcy in the United States, because we're the only civilized quote unquote, you can ask, wonder about that with our gun laws, but that's another issue. We're the only uh, developed country in the Western world that doesn't have some kind of national health. That doesn't have to be socialized medicine. Sure. But there has to be a system in place. Uh, but we have elected not to do that. And what we, people used to talk about the military industrial complex, well, we have the medical uh, for profit complex, uh, in in the United States at the present time.
0: One of the things that's really shocking is the infant mortality rate in the United States. And given that we are a first world nation, that seems, uh,
1: it's not our priority.
0: Mm -hmm. Our
1: children are our priority, but other people's children are not our priority. Right. And there has,
0: and there has to be the will to change that. What's it, what's it going to take? Do you think?
1: Well, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and this is a, a week after three nine-year-olds were shot Yeah. at a, at a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it going to take? H- how many repetitions of these kind of events do we have to have uh, in the United States before we make some difficult, perhaps for some, but some sane decisions? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I don't think that the founders of our country meant for AK-47s and automatic weapons of war and destruction is what they meant when they said that we need to have a militia in place. Uh, right. I don't think civilians need to have AK-47s. That's right. my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Um, and then there's also there's also the, there's a mental health element in there um and most people don't know
1: this but i work for the you know i I have a long time relationship with the veterans affairs Mm -hmm. but i think the single largest part of the check Mm -hmm. related to the health for vha for the veterans health affairs relates to mental health some of this is ptsd we're still paying the price for our our folks that went to vietnam There's been a huge cry and relief now that we're 10 years out from Iraq. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've got people with Agent Orange. We've got people with mental disease. So mental health is one of the main things that the uh, VA addresses and uses its resources to try uh, to help the folks who put themselves on the line for our country. Mm -hmm.
0: What do you think is the biggest, um, and this might be it, um, but is there anything else in your opinion, that is um, the biggest challenge for the United States with regard to uh, with regard to um, uh, medical needs, whether that be mental, mental or physical health.
1: I, quite frankly, uh, you know, you can make changes either by evolution or revolution, and I'm not proposing necessarily a revolution in the United States. But I do think that we need to seriously think about what are our priorities? What are our priorities when we look at the money that we spend on vacations, on air travel? And this is going to offend a lot of people on pets and pet food and pet veterinarians. uh, When we have children that don't have health care, when we have people who put their life on the line and they don't have good health care, we are accepting things that I think are an ethical challenge to our country. And quite frankly, given the polarization in our country, which we are told is equal to that of the Israelis and the Palestinians at the present time, uh, it's hard to be optimistic. I'm basically, as a surgical oncologist, always cautiously optimistic. But if you reality test, I think you would say it's only going to get worse.
0: Yeah, there is a disparity.
1: (laughs) we're basically greedy.
0: Yeah, we and want there's... to take care
1: of ourselves and our own, mm-hmm. but we really don't have a sense of urgency about those other peoples. You know, we're told that they're makers and they're takers. Well, if you look at the tax cuts that have been given to the rich, I would maintain that the makers, if you're saying that's the people that have industry and the commerce, I think they're the major takers in the United States right now and not Ronald Reagan's welfare queens and other people who they basically maligned, in my opinion.
0: Right. Right. And again, we have a we have a huge disparity between the haves and have nots in this country. And also um, there's a there is a divisiveness in the culture now that I don't ever remember seeing, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s that is present now that and then social media has has exacerbated and exaggerated those those divisions and it's it's hard it's it's hard not to believe that there's some kind of uh methodology behind that um because uh because people are people are are demonizing one another and hating each other without actually having having sit-downs and in individual conversations and um uh what do you think and to take this back to medicine again what what should every young person who who uh who has the desire to go into medicine, whether as a doctor or a nurse or any other kind of healthcare professional, what is what what is, what is it that they should know that perhaps they don't as a young person going into this?
1: There's a theologian who uh, had some notoriety. He died about five or 10 years ago, but he actually uh, wrote many books. He wrote several books. Uh, one of the ones I like the most is that the heart is a little to the left, uh, but he also wrote one called The Passion for the Possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, he differentiated between Career and vocation. Mm-hmm. So career comes from the Latin word for racetrack. And there's a Porsche called a karari, which yes. is what the Latin word is. Yep. Uh, and so the racetrack is where people go round and round and round in circles for transitory fame and glory. Mm-hmm. A vocation, on the other hand, is listening to your gut and saying, what is my calling? It's a term that's used for priests and nuns and religious uh, from that tradition and background. So why are you here? what is your purpose? Uh, I actually, in my talks, I say, what do you want for your epitaph? He took great vacations. He had a great antique car collection, X, Y, and Z Z, R. He washed feet. He took care of people in need, uh, or he, he taught, uh, those sorts of things. So there's a, the guy that was my mentor in Baltimore, his name is Dick Kiefer. Uh, he died 15 or 20 years ago, but he's who I kind of role modeled after in many ways. And he he retired to Asheville, North Carolina, where his son was after his wife died. Uh, and I would keep up with him through his son and talking to him and everything. And when he died, uh, I called John Cameron, who is one of the premier surgeons, not only in the United States, but in the whole world, in my opinion. But I called John Cameron, who was the then chair of surgery at Johns Hopkins. And I said, Dr. Cameron, I still call him Dr. Cameron, uh, said, Dr. Cameron, I just want to let you know that Dr. Kiefer expired. It was like two days ago. I just talked to Bob and he explained it. So there was a pause. And then John Cameron, a premier surgeon, said he taught us all how to operate. What an epitaph for somebody who did not have a lot of national notoriety. But it was showing up at a VA hospital every day, taking care of veterans and teaching young surgeons how to operate, how to not operate, to make good clinical decisions, to treat these people the way you would want your family to be treated, and not just uh, a way to pay the rent or your kids' tuition or to support your lifestyle.
0: Right. And that brings spirituality into medicine and really i would argue that spirituality should be brought into everything
1: (laughs) well you and i are on the same page there and uh you know and i'll just my my wife and i actually along with colleagues uh, dean bonnie miller and uh the chaplain at saint thomas hospital here uh uh, mary lou o'gorman we actually had electives at vanderbilt for a decade or so until they changed the curriculum about spirituality and medicine And one of the things that's interesting about the word religion, because religion and spirituality, and these are are kind of overlapping terms at some time, uh, but the word religion comes from a surgical word, uh, and it's the same word that's ligature or ligate, like you tie up a vessel or a ligature. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I make a contrast, is that one's religion can bind you around a post like St. Sebastian with people throwing spears and shooting arrows at you, or your ligament like your anterior cruciate can let you run and jump and play the game and rebound and score points in Mm -hmm. the NCAA finals. So I think one's religion can lead them to shoot people at clinics that are run by Planned Parenthood or to blow up the Murrah building or to do other egregious acts. It also can energize our priest friend, whose mother was killed by a homeless man, to say, I'm not going to attack the homeless. I'm going to take care of the homeless. And he started room in the end in Nashville, which now from like October till the end of March, makes sure that there's food and a place to sleep during the cold weather for the homeless who want it. So mm-hmm. again, our religion can bind us or it can empower and mobilize us. So a passion for the possible. We can't give up. The alternative is to say we're going to accept this and give up i don't think that's an acceptable alternative i think we have an ethical conf- confrontation i think we have a spiritual confrontation uh, and right now it's too much about us and it's too much about possessions instead of people mm-hmm.
0: you know the the dalai lama used to say that um my religion is kindness
1: well and i thought that's beautiful that that, I, I tell people that you are what you read and so there's a book called The Book of Joy, which was a conversation for a week between the Dalai Lama and, for, and Desmond Tutu, who was I Archbishop. have it. Well, I recommend One of my favorites. It the talks. It's an incredible read. Uh, there's another book called The Long Walk to Freedom by Mandela, which I highly recommend. So mm-hmm. those two books, if, as we conclude here, I'll just say those two books are highly worth taking a look at.
0: They absolutely are. And I think I'm going to read The Book of Joy again, because it's been about four years since I've read it. So, wow. Well, that is a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Tarpley. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I tell people I may preach a sermon, but I'm not taking up an offering.
0: I so enjoyed that delightful chat with Dr. John Tarpley. Thank you so much, Dr. Tarpley, for your time today. I was very grateful to be able to speak with you before you jumped on another airplane and headed off for parts unknown. So thank you so much for your time, your stories, your service, and for all uh, the good work that you do and for being a, a real force for good in the world. Also, a big thank you to the listeners of Conversations from Here podcast. I could not do this without you, without your ears, without your support. So, eternally grateful to you. And also, letting you know there will be, in future, more episodes like this one, speaking with people about what they love to do and how they came to do it. There will also be future episodes of additional editions of the where to start series. This is my wellness health and wellness collaboration with Dr. Jess Lakin. And we have more episodes planned for you. So all good and exciting stuff. Until next time, take good care of yourselves. Take good care of each other. And as always, I will see you on the other side. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Be well.